Fathers and sons, husbands and wives, wives and sons, friends and lovers, set against the background of the military. Sounds like it's time for episode 51 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest will choose a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your Kobayashi Maru host, Howard. Today, I am happy to welcome back as my guest, screenwriter and blogger Paul Zeidman. Paul has chosen the second entry in the Star Trek movie franchise, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, while I have chosen the John Ford classic, the last in his Calvary trilogy, Rio Grande. Both films about fathers not only facing battle, but also coming to terms with an estranged son. To begin, Paul, why don't you remind our audience about yourself? Well, as you mentioned, my name is Paul Zeidman. I'm a screenwriter. I'm based in San Francisco, and I also run the screenwriting blog Maximum Z, which is at MaximumZ.blog, which features the combination of my chronicling of my journey towards becoming a working screenwriter. And I also do interviews with all kinds of people affiliated with screenwriting, including other writers, filmmakers, script consultants. I also talk to people who are creative in other mediums, like television, of comic book writers. And it's just a celebration of writing and also talking to various creative people about their whole process, how they create what they create. Fantastic. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. First, some information about the film. The Wrath of Khan is an American film released in 1982. It was directed by Nicholas Meyer and written by Jack B. Sowards from a story by Sowards and Harv Bennett, who is also the executive producer, based on characters from the original Star Trek series, especially the episode Space Seed. It stars William Shatner, Ricardo Montalban, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Dewan, George Takai, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, B.B. Besh, Merritt Buttrick, Paul Winfield, Kirstie Alley, and Ike Eisenman. The story revolves around the creation of the Genesis device, a program that can create a thriving, Eden-like world on a dead planet. While scouting for an appropriate planet to experiment on, Officer Pavel Chekhov runs into Khan, a human genetically designed to be superior in every way. Khan had been previously exiled by Captain Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, but the exile cost him his wife and most of his men, and now he seeks revenge by killing Kirk and stealing the Genesis device. But Khan is not the only person from Kirk's past that he runs into. Why did you choose the film? It's a combination of things. I've always been a big fan of science fiction. Growing up, Star Trek, the original series, was on constant rotation on television. So I watched a lot of that. And also, I'm a big fan of Star Wars, which, as we discussed in our previous installment of your show. It's interesting that Star Wars is more geared towards fantasy, and Star Trek is a lot more adult in its presentation of science fiction. It's not all about just special effects and monsters. That was one of the appeals of Star Trek was that Gene Roddenberry, who originally created it, was more that he wanted it to be about the morality and the humanity of, I guess you could call it space exploration. I remember seeing Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I think that was 1979. It was just kind of boring because it wasn't an interesting story to me. But then Star Trek II came out. I think they just totally revised their approach, and there was much more of an emphasis on the action and the adventure and the excitement, but they also talk a lot about emotions and relationships, humanity. But also also, on a personal note, I remember seeing it in the theater because I went with my father. I guess it was in the summer of 1982, and that was in August, and I grew up in southern New Jersey. Uh, late summer in that region of the country is very prone to hurricanes and thunderstorms. 
we went to see this and there was a thunderstorm raging outside the theater and it made for the most amazing and memorable movie going experiences I can ever recall being there with my dad. We have a good relationship, but this was one of those special father-son bonding things. I think the thunderstorm was really the icing on the cake. Star Trek II will always hold a special place in my heart for both the content and the material, but also my connection and the memory I have with originally seeing it. Well, what did you think upon first seeing it? I thought it was a lot of fun because, as I said, they really played up a lot of the action and the adventure aspect of it. And also, I don't think I'd ever seen the Space Seed, the episode from the original series that it was based on. But I got enough from how the story was presented to understand what was going on. Again, because they put a little bit more emphasis on the visual and the action, that added to the enjoyment of the movie. I don't know if anyone recalls seeing Star Trek The Motion Picture. It had an interesting story, but I thought it was poorly executed. This one, I think, was done very well, and it's almost held up as a standard for what a Star Trek movie should be. And do you think it still holds up? Very much so. I actually watched it a couple of months ago. Granted, the special effects are a bit dated, but for the most part, it's still a really good story because you're able to focus on the whole thing rather than just, oh, you know, the effects are okay. Granted, Ricardo Montalban chews up a little scenery, but that's his character. He's not overplaying it just because he can. It's because it's what the character demands. Now, I'm a bit older watching it. I can definitely relate more to Kirk. That's one of the things I really remember about the story. Kirk is accepting the fact that he's getting older and he's not the young man he used to be (laughs) who can't relate to that not that he's missing the glory days but there's a certain nostalgia factor for him he enjoyed that and now he realizes he's slowing down he's aging he has to accept his own mortality it's almost like he's going kicking and screaming into his future i saw it when it opened my history of star trek and we'll get into that in more detail later on when we talk about our histories with star trek i'm one of the persons who saw the very first episode of star trek the series the very night it debuted i did not dislike star trek the movie like some many other people did. I actually rather enjoyed it. But this was, I thought, a step forward. It is a much better movie. It's a much more interesting movie. Pauline Kael of The New Yorker called the film Wonderful Dumb Fun. And I think (laughs) in a way, that's very true. It is very, very entertaining. I think it does have some structural issues. And there is one aspect of the film that just doesn't hold up now. And that I thought was problematic at the time, or actually when the next movie in the franchise was made, that concerns the death of Spock, and we'll get into that as well. What are some of your favorite scenes? Oh, gosh. I really like when Khan and his followers first appear on SETI Alpha 5, I would say. Or 4 Because I I remember his big line, this is SETI Alpha 5 because the other planet exploded. That was a good scene. And maybe because I've started wearing glasses myself, the scene where they're trying to outwit Khan and Kirk is forced to put on his glasses, looks around at the bridge at his crew, and he realizes, well, I need to put on my glasses so I can see this. That moment of pause, this hesitation. Granted, Shatner is a notorious scene chewer, overacting in his stilted dialogue, but that little bit really hit the point home. What was also good was the final showdown between the Enterprise and the Reliant in the Horsehead Nebula. There's even a few moments where it's just quiet. You just see the two ships drifting through space as they're trying to evade each other. That was really effective filmmaking because it emphasized how suspenseful and how much tension there was in the whole situation. I guess this also says something about Montalban's acting. A lot of his lines were just delivered with such effectiveness. One that really stands out is, he tasks me. Then 
he starts quoting Moby Dick at the end from Hell's Heart, I stab at thee. Just the way he delivers it, it was so perfect for the character. The fight that takes place in the nebula was highly influenced by a film called The Enemy Below, in which Robert Mitchum is manning a submarine and is playing cat and mouse with a German ship during World War II, which actually was the basis of a particular Star Trek episode as well. I thought that was very interesting in that the two main characters, Khan and Kirk, never meet. And they did in some of the scripts, but this was all by ship. Maltabon said the one frustrating part of doing the film was that he never acted against Kirk. He was acting against someone who was reading the lines. And one of the reasons for that is that when they wrote him into the script, they hadn't asked him. And they had forgotten that he had a very successful TV show going at the time. Uh, it's a fantasy island. Right. Suddenly they realized, are we even going to be able to get him? But they were able to shoot around fantasy island. And one of the reasons is because the way they did the final showdown, there wasn't a one-on-one fight. And I did think that was rather clever. I also agree that the opening scene on the planet where Khan appears is very effective. It should be noted that logically it makes no sense because Chekhov never met Khan. Mm-hmm. TV series. In the series Space Seed, he wasn't yet part of the crew, but he recognizes him instantly. That was something that everybody forgot. I think it was DeForest Kelly who mentioned, oh, by the way, did you know? I think there's some fan theory or something around the internet that explains how would Chekhov know who Khan was. A bit of a stretch, but I think a lot of people are like, yeah, that works. What the novelization of a movie says, that he was a member of the crew, but had not been promoted up to being the navigator. The finale, when I first saw it with Spock's death, and here I'll get into one of the problems I have with the film. When I first saw the film, my memory is no one knew that Spock was going to die in the audience. So when he dies, it was very emotional Mm -hmm. and it was very powerful. When he says, I have been and always will be your friend, that was it. Then they have the next one and he's live. And I'm going, well, you ruined it. You just absolutely ruined it. Now, I think in their defense, they didn't really plan on having Spock alive for the third one. So many of these People didn't even want to do this movie. The Nomoy didn't want to do it. I don't think he had that great experience on the first one. But when they told him, well, we'll give you a great death scene, he said, okay, I'll do it. And then enjoyed making the film so much that he was more than willing to come back. The fan reaction was such that they decided to bring him back. So when I watch it now and the death scene comes on, I have no emotional feeling on it because I know he's not dead. Okay, I I can understand that. But I think even if you know that bring him back in the next one, it still packs a bit of a punch. Granted, it doesn't have the first time you saw it kind of punch. But I think it's true to the characters. Spock is so self-sacrificing. You know, he dies. And just before they launch him into space where he goes, you know, all my travels, his was the most human that I had experienced. It's really good filmmaking and great storytelling. And yeah, it's a bit of a cheat to bring him back in the next one. I thought part of the reason they brought him back was they just offered him a lot more money. And also, I can't remember, did Leonard Nimoy direct the third one? Four. I think he did number four. And I think that was one of his conditions for doing the fourth one is I'm only going to do another one if I can now direct it. And then William Shatner got very jealous and said, well, then I'm going to direct the next one. And people like the Leonard Nimoy one better. 
I did have the same feeling at the end of the Avengers Infinity War, oh, where at the uh-huh. end, all these people are disappearing. I could feel it in the audience around me. They're going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. These people are disappearing. And I'm going, are you kidding? They're going to be back. <laughs> There's too much money invested in these people. And they have all these franchises. They're going to bring them back. And the mistake I think they made was at the opening scene of Endgame is when Hawkeye's family disappears. I said, that's how you should have ended Infinity Wars because we have no idea if they're going to come back. Uh, you know, because they're expendable. What did you think of the directing? It was by Nicholas Myers. Have you seen other films of Nicholas Myers? I had not, but I thought what was really good, and this will come into play a little bit later, I thought this one looked really good. The directing was pretty spot on. I couldn't find any fault with it, but I think what also helped, it looked like a film. When I recently watched this a couple of months ago, Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 are almost like a great triple feature because it's all one continuous story. It was made that way. So More or less. In trilogy. More right. or less. Watching number three, a lot of it takes place on the ships and then it's on uh, the Genesis planet at the end. But the problem was that the third act of that one, it just looked like a TV show, a fancy video. You can tell it's a set, the cheesy, fiery special effects. And I think that diminishes the quality of it. But the way the film looked, a little disappointing. But watching Wrath of Khan, there's a lot more finesse to the filmmaking. So like, you know, the scene where Chekhov and Paul Winfield show up at Khan base, there's so much tension in the air, even before they bring in the earworm. And then again, where the Enterprise, they go to the medical station, and then there's the showdown between the two ships. It seems much more cinematic. Number three is kind of a letdown. And number four is like entirely different kind of thing altogether. It's almost like space comedy. And I think we're back to Nicholas Meyer as writer. Writer? That's when they go to San Francisco. Correct, yes. He's not a great director, but he's a solid director. And he has directed, besides this one, three other films that have some sort of cachet. He wrote the book and then directed The 7% Solution, which is more interesting than successful, but it has some interesting aspects of it. Then Time After Time, the Mm -hmm. Jack Ripper time travel movie, and then the two-part television movie, uh, The Day After, about a nuclear attack on the U.S. Okay. But he said that in doing The Voyage Home, he was able to use a lot of stuff that he wasn't able to use in Time After Time. Well, they do both take place in San Francisco, and the only connection I have to Voyage Home, apart from the fact that I actually live in San Francisco. So two years ago, I met a local filmmaker and his office was in the same space in Voyage Home where Kirk goes to haunt his eyeglasses. And I recognize the stairs and looking out towards the streets. Well, I think Nicholas Myers does bring a couple of things to the movie. One is, you are right, William Shatner is a bit of a scene chewer, to say the least. To say the least. And he's not a particularly good dramatic actor. Even on the original Star Trek, when he was trying to be dramatic, he was never particularly convincing. He's a really good comedian, really good farceur. The best Star Treks are the ones mainly played for comedy, like The Trouble with Tribbles and A Piece mm-hmm. of the Action. And But I think Nicholas Myers, not just for him, but for a lot of the actors, perhaps with the exception of Ricardo Montalban, but why would you want to? He was able to tap down their acting and put it on a more realistic 
level. Even William Shatner, except for the infamous, let us say, scene where he shouts Khan, which is a scene that's often parodied and ridiculed. Mm-hmm. But he also is many ways responsible for the screenplay. There had been many different versions of the screenplay. You talk about Gene Roddenberry. He had ideas for the screenplay, but they wanted him out. He caused cost overruns and delays on the first film. It was a real problem in relating to the producers. So when they decided to do the second one, they kicked him upstairs. They promoted him to producer. And he did have some influence, but at that point, they pretty much ignored him. So they had a couple of screenplays. Harv Bennett wrote the story. Jack B. Sowards then wrote a screenplay. And those were journeyman writers. And then Nicholas Myers came in, took all the different screenplays. And he actually had each of the writers list the main aspects of each screenplay and what they liked about them. And I think he had like the actors do it. And he took all those and managed to merge them all together into this one screenplay. And in less than 12 days, they were pretty impressed by The Final Solution. I think in many ways, it is a very solid screenplay. But I think there is an area where there might be some problems. The main one is that the subplot of him meeting his son and his ex-lover, there really isn't a lot there. You have three through lines going on. You have Khan, the Genesis Project, and then you have William Shatner meeting his son. And then you have action scenes. You get all of that together. You really have a hard time covering every through line in a satisfactory manner. It's probably one of the weakest parts of the film because it's really not given that much attention. And they definitely downplay the importance of it, especially how it would impact Kirk. You would imagine this guy is bounding about space and he discovers, you know, oh my God, I've got a son. He's like 25, 30 years old. I don't want to call it far-fetched, but it just seems a little bit of a reach that all of a sudden his life you know, doesn't even change him that much kind of like well well, how about that and then but number three you know david's killed by the klingons really upset but it rings hollow it's interesting that you say that the sun dies in the second one because that was driving me up the wall i was waiting for the sun to die in this one and then he doesn't die (laughs) now i realize yes it's in the second one that he dies and i had the same reaction as you did why include him if you're going to kill him off it just doesn't make a lot of sense plot-wise, structural-wise. There's no point of having him as a character if you're never really going to use him again. They introduce him, but he really doesn't have much to do. Hey, here's this part of your past, but that's all we're going to talk about. Kirk doesn't even show any remorse that he wasn't there for him. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into Rio Grande. We're talking about the technical aspects of the film. This was the first feature film to contain a sequence created entirely with computer graphics, both the Starfly through prior to the opening critics and ILM's animation for the demonstration of the effects of the Genesis device on a barren planet. Yeah, and if you look at it today, you can really see how basic and rudimentary the effects are. At the time, I'm sure they were mind-blowing because you had this planet suddenly becoming a sustainable planet within seconds. If you look at it now, almost 40 years later, it just looks like, oh, wow, that's so simplistic. That's true for me with other movies, too. When I see movies in the 1950s, like Ben-Hur, which were said to have all these incredible special effects, at the time, they were quite impressive. And today, they look a kind of fake. Even taking it a step further than that, go back to Buster Crab Flash Gordon serials from the 30s. It's a model with sparklers stuck into the back. And you think, oh, my God, that looks like something I could make in my garage. For people at the time, that was like, wow, look at that. That's amazing. How do they do that? You can even look at King Kong from 1933. As time goes on and the effects become more complicated and more sophisticated, 
complicated. We tend to look back almost in a jaded way, like, how could people be so gullible? Which is why it's very important not to have a movie that depends on special effects. You have to have something else that interests the audience so that that aspect of it, even though it gets dated, would still enjoy the movie. You talked about this some, but what is your history of Star Trek? And not just the original series, but Star Trek as a whole. I guess you would call me a casual fan. I enjoy it, but I don't know a lot of specific details about it. I enjoyed watching it when the original series was on. I enjoyed Next Generation and Voyager. They've been doing what they can to keep the franchise alive because a lot of the new stuff, I think it's on Paramount or CBS All Access or something, but I haven't seen any of those. It looks interesting, but if I don't see another Star Trek movie, I'm not going to be upset. I remember when J.J. Abrams relaunched the franchise probably like 11 or 12 years ago now. There was so much more of an emphasis on the special effects when the first one came out in 2009. I saw it in the theaters because I wanted to see the kind of approach they took to it, and it looked great. I just did not like it. Each movie after that weakened the franchise. That's probably why we don't see demand for another Star Trek movie, the second one, Beyond Darkness, which they brought back Khan, which was just a stupid thing to do because they had so many potential stories but I guess they were trying to do as much fan service as they could. So what you're saying about Gene Roddenberry, I remember hearing this when they were doing pre-production on Wrath of Khan. They were explaining to him, and this is what the showdown between the two ships is going to be, and like laser fights and photon torpedoes, and it was really an emphasis on the special effects. His thing was like, well, yeah, that's really nice and pretty, but remember, he wrote a lot of the original series as morality plays. Granted, it was set in a science fiction in the 23rd century, there was also an emphasis on the emotional aspects of it, the morality of the situation, the prime directive not interfering with a planet's development. He tried to apply that to as many of the episodes as he could. So when they were making the movies, he wanted to try and keep that same humanity aspect of it as well. They were like, we got to appeal to the kids. They want the flash and the whiz bang. You watch, especially Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, and then you watch the current batch of films. They just don't have the same emotional impact. I did like the first one of those, but the second one with Khan... It's not so much that they brought back Khan as they didn't bring back Khan. Because that con had absolutely nothing to do with the original con. The story was a mess. Yes, that one definitely. As I mentioned, I saw the very first episode of Star Trek the very night that it debuted. I watched every single episode. Then in college, even as you mentioned, it was on every day at a certain time. Mm -hmm. I would go and watch it. The odd thing is, the more you watch them, the more you realize that a lot of them are pretty cheesy. You get to know which ones are the good ones and which ones aren't, but I would still watch all of them. But what I always found interesting, even when I first saw it, I knew that he was doing parables of what was going on, especially of the Cold War with the Klingons as the Russians. As Gene Roddenberry said, he never had any problems with this because it was science fiction, because it was all metaphor. It was like the Twilight Zone. So many of them are about the Cold War paranoia and our parables and morality plays. The censors never caught on. Producers, the network, never realized what exactly was going on here. The second one, The New Generation, I did watch a few of them. They never really caught on for me. I thought what was most interesting was that the Cold War was over. And so now the series is actually about the Enterprise in peacetime discovering new worlds and interacting with them. They had some great villains. They introduced the Borg, which a friend of mine said was the perfect metaphor for postmodernism. I think it just <laughs> simulates everything and makes it all the same. But I haven't been seeing many of the other Star Treks, so I don't know if they are still maintaining that metaphor or morality play. 
With that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $12 million to make and made $97 million. Although the total gross of the Wrath of Khan was less than that of Star Trek The Motion Picture, it was more profitable due to its lower production cost. Contrary to speculation that Multiban used a prosthetic chest, no artificial devices were added to Multiban's muscular physique. And it probably should be noted that most of his men were Chippendale dancers. According to IMDb, this is the first time a feature film was made as a sequel to a specific television series episode. The scenic view of San Francisco through Kirk's apartment window is a painting. It was one that was originally used for the Towering Inferno for the background of that building. They did add a couple of models of skyscrapers. But if you assume that Kirk's apartment is in the same place as the tower in the Towering Inferno, apparently his address is 655 Market Street, San Francisco, California, on the 135th floor. (laughs) So that means he's in the heart of downtown, but he has a spectacular view. Right. Meyer had a snow smoking sign added to the Enterprise's bridge, and everybody got upset about it. But he said, why? No one's going to stop smoking just because it's the future. But in the original Star Trek, there was nothing like that. Gene Roddenberry said that in the future, they've completely stopped smoking. So the sign was actually removed. You see it, I think, in the early scenes, and then you don't see it anymore. It was Kirstie Alley's first film. When I watched it, especially this time, I did think that she was actually somewhat emotional for a Vulcan in one of the original screenplays, but never made it to the final one. She is actually of mixed Vulcan and Romulan heritage, Mm -hmm. and that's why she is more emotional than a Vulcan normally would be. And Nicholas Meyer's very first film that he wrote is Invasion of the Bee-Girls a low-budget horror film that is not good, but is very good for what it is. So if you want to see a good, bad film, I recommend Invasion of the Bee-Girls. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Rio Grande. First, some information about the film. Rio Grande is an American Western released in 1950. It was directed by John Ford from a screenplay by James Kevin McGinnis, based on a 1947 story, Mission with No Record, by James Warner Bella, published in the Saturday Evening Post. It stars John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Ben Johnson, Claude Jarman Jr., Harry Carey Jr., Jill Wills, J. Carol Nash, Victor McLaughlin, Grant Withers, The Sons of the Pioneers, Carolyn Grimes, Alberto Moran, and Ken Curtis. The story takes place in 1879. Lieutenant Kirby York has been assigned to a cavalry unit to fight off the local Apache tribes who use Mexico, easily reached by crossing the Rio Grande as a way to hide since York can't cross the border. One day, a fresh set of recruits shows up, including the son who he hasn't seen in 15 years and who flunked out of West Point. Soon after, York's estranged wife also shows up, trying to convince her son to come back east. Tensions rise, both personal and military as the Apaches continue to attack the fort. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I can see why they were paired. The only thing is that, I'll start with this straight out, I did not like Rio Grande. I thought it was a really poor entry in John Ford's catalog. I like a lot of his other works, but this one just seemed really weak, almost like a mishmash of storylines that really wasn't as resolved because I really didn't get a sense of what the primary storyline was supposed to be. The relationship between York and his son, they talked about it a little bit, but it seemed like every time they would seem to be going towards that, then something else would come up or there were some kinds of scenes of comic relief involving, you know, the Irish sergeant or the kids and then suddenly we've got to get the women and children out of here oh my god wagons were attacked by the indians now the kids have been taken to a church it seemed like a big mishmash of all these different things that they threw into a script and just started filming if i watch the searchers and then i watch this apart from the cinematography and john wayne it would be almost hard to believe that they were the same director okay 
<laughs> when did you first see the film? Honestly, I did not even know about it until you had mentioned it. So I watched it a couple of days ago. I just thought it was very slow. And I really thought there was going to be much more of an emphasis on the relation between John Wayne and his son. They did not give as much attention to it as I was expecting. And then the mother shows up. She's like, I want to take him out. And he's like, well, no, that's his decision. And the son's like, no, I guess he wants to prove himself to his father. But you know, he hasn't seen him in 15 years. So why does he feel such a strong need to prove himself to this man he doesn't even really know. John Wayne's character doesn't even know what to do about the son. So the son's got to be, what, 18 or 19? He's 17. 17. So I think it's been 15 years. I don't think he's seen him since he's two. And I think he wasn't old enough to join the army. I think they said he lied about his age, but don't quote me. Okay. Well, this might make for an interesting discussion because I feel almost the totally opposite of you in almost every aspect of the film. It's actually one okay. of my favorite Ford Westerns. We covered The Searchers on another episode here, and I have to say, I am not a fan of The Searchers. I don't understand why everybody thinks The Searchers is this great movie. I think Fort Apache is a much better movie on the same subject matter as The Searchers. But this is the third of the Calvary trilogy. She wore Yellow Ribbon, Fort Apache, and then Rio Grande. I think it's actually a very beautiful film. It has its flaws, and we'll certainly get into that. But I think its strengths are the things that you think are its faults. I think it's strong because it's almost totally focused on this uneasy relationship between father, son, and then with the wife, as they're all trying to figure out how to relate to each other, what decisions to make. In many ways, the Native Americans, the Apaches in the background, are just background. They're just there as an excuse to allow the relationships of these three central characters to play themselves out. One of the reasons why I chose Rio Ground is because when I saw Star Trek II, one of the first things I thought is, oh, I've seen this movie before. It's called Rio Grande. But one of the differences is that in Star Trek II, there's almost no development of the relationship between the father and son. All the emphasis is put on Khan and his conflict with Kirk. This is all almost character-driven. I felt very emotional about these people just really not knowing what to do and how to relate to each other. I do also think it's very beautiful. Some of it does very much look like it's on a soundstage, but so does The Searchers, so do many of us <laughs> others. My favorite Westerns of Fords are Stagecoach and My Darling Clementine and then Fort Apache and Shore Yellow Ribbon and then in many ways probably this one. So there's that. But yes, it does have faults and it's not perfect and I can understand that. Did you have any scenes that you enjoyed or that you liked? What I thought was the most interesting was the whole finale, the showdown at the church, Calvary has to come and rescue these children. I was really expecting the son to play a bigger role. Because going back to that, I think I enjoyed the husband-wife relationship more than the father and son one, because I guess for me, there wasn't enough of a look at the father-son relationship. It seemed like there's only a handful of scenes involving them, but the connection between the husband and the wife, even though they're, I guess, estranged, there's more emotion to that one. And maybe part of it is that the father doesn't know how to relate to the son, you know, because he hasn't been part of his life. He's not sure what to do, so maybe he just avoids the son as much as he can, unless absolutely necessary. But again, Going back to the finale, I thought the son would be more of a leader in trying to rescue the children. And then it's nice that he gets accommodation at the end, but so do the three or four other people who helped in this rescue. And it almost seemed like Tyree, the guy wanted for manslaughter, that subplot was more memorable than some of the other parts of the movie. 
some of the scenes I enjoyed. I enjoyed the horse riding scenes where they jump up on two horses at the same time and ride around and jump over the barriers. I thought that was incredibly well-directed, incredibly well-staged, and looked and quite exciting. I liked the sense of the pioneers the first time they came serenading. There's something about John Ford. He can take music and songs and dances and use them at just the right time to imbue an incredible amount of motion in a scene. He does this in My Darling Clementine. He does it in Port Apache. He does it in The Searchers. He's magical at this. The problem I have is the sons of the pioneers just keep on singing. Mm -hmm. I, I will not disagree with that. They grow old fast. I thought what, what was also interesting is that I know a lot of the cast are part of John Ford's troop of regulars. Right. Like Harry Carey Jr. was one, and the actor who played the Sergeant Quinn Cannon. Victor McLaughlin, yeah. So many of these actors are up there in years. I'm sort of familiar with the Civil War and post-Civil War history. A lot of the officers, they were a little younger than that. So you had these guys in their 50s, and they're trying to put, pass themselves off as being in their 30s, and it just doesn't work. John Wayne looks great. He was in super shape, slim and tall, and he cut a dashing figure. And you have dumpy guys in there. So some of these actors were John Ford regulars that has to have a place for them in the story. I don't know who the actor was who played the French captain, the one with the goatee and the eye patch. Seemed like a much more interesting character. It's like, why did they not explore him more? This is a personal thing for me. J. Carroll Nash, who played the general, I'm a huge fan of old time radio, and he had this really successful show called Life with Luigi, where he played an Italian immigrant in, in 40s Chicago. You know, he talked like Chico Marx. Hey, I had to go down yeah. to the. I looked up his biography, and he was like a master of dialects. He could do any voice you asked him to do. He was able to do with a stern uh, commanding general. And it's like, my God, that's the same guy who did this timid, comedic Italian immigrant character. I think that really spoke to his acting ability. But then you look at him and John Wayne plays the same character in almost every movie that he's in. And I thought Maureen O'Hara was great. Going back to, I think, the husband-wife relationship, that was the strongest one in the film for me. I think that's very true. John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara do have great chemistry. And this is further demonstrated because they make quite a few few movies together. I will defend, in a way, Victor McLaughlin. He is supposed to be that old. He's now down to training troops. That's what happens the older you get. So he actually does look the age I think he's supposed to be. I thought Ben Johnson, who was the one who... He was Tyree. Right, he was the one being hunted down by the Texas Ranger. Looked incredibly young to me, but I guess I'm just used to him, though I've seen him many, many times from seeing the movie. He's the last picture show. But you're right, John Wayne does look great. I was even surprised how well he looked and how young he looked for his age. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why he didn't join up in World War II and why he and John Ford had problems for a while is because he was in his 40s during World War II. He was actually too old to play the role in Stagecoach, but they sort of finesse it. And he had kids and he had a wife. He just thought, I'm too old to go to war and I can do more for the war effort staying home. John Ford went and joined up. That caused some problems for a while. But yes, he's got to be approaching 60. <laughs> he really looked good. You've got to give him that. One of the reasons why the script may not be quite as strong is was that John Ford didn't really want to do the movie. He wanted to do The Quiet Man, but the studio thought that The Quiet Man was going to be a surefire flop. Mm. So they wanted him to do this one first because they thought it's a Western, it's John Ford, it's going to make a lot of money. It didn't make a lot of money, and The Quiet Man made a ton of money. Sometimes it's nice when, you know, revenge is sweet. 
The Quiet Man was also one of John Ford's passion projects because it was a whole Irish heritage thing. Right. And so he, re- he really wanted to make that. So I can see why the studio was like, well, yeah, yeah, you're a Western guy. You know, once you just stick with what you're good at, and he just stuck to his guns and is able to make that. It got a much better response than they even expected. Until then, they just kept thinking, oh, yeah, he's good for Westerns and that's about it. Are you a Ford fan? I do like a lot of his material. John Ford is almost the predecessor to Sam Peckinpah's Westerns. Part of it is John Ford loved the period. That is evident in this movie. He really loves the cavalry. There's so many scenes just about bringing the horses in and you know, let's fall in for formation, getting organized, the troops overall. I think he loves that sort of thing. And it really shows on screen. I guess part of my issue is that sometimes, I don't know if it's him or just the way the the scripts work out, I don't like when they feel like they need to shove in the comic relief bit. The whole thing with the girl and Quinn Cannon, Uncle Timmy, Uncle Timmy, oh God, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. They're trying to rescue the kids from the savage Indians and she's like, oh boy, is there going to be a shooting? And she's like really excited about it. On some levels I can see that, but oh God, and they just have kept telling her to shush. I just think it falls a little bit flat when he tries to go for these comedic moments, especially with the scenes with her. It kind of reminded me of the one in The Searchers where the guy gets a, a Native American wife. She's only in like a handful of scenes played up for comedic effect. And I just think it really takes away from the overall tone of the stories. If you took out that character, took out these scenes, would it still be as effective a story I'm leaning towards yes, I think it would. I think you make some very good points, and I certainly agree with some of them. As to whether I'm a Ford fan, I guess I am. I do consider him one of the great American directors. I think his best output of films started with Stagecoach, though The Informant certainly has some good elements for it, but a lot of his films in the 30s often aren't quite as interesting. Stagecoach was the big thing. And then toward the end of his life, where he's trying to make amends for how he treated the Native Americans, those don't quite work. I especially like his westerns, and I'm not a big fan of westerns. His other films are hit and miss, in high regard as some of them are held. I don't really go back and want to watch them. He can be a brilliant director. He can be a brilliant visual stylist. But as you mentioned, they are sometimes flawed by the use of comedy. Sometimes I think the issue is that they may be a bit dated. When the movies were made, the audience thought that was hysterical. Today we're going, I don't understand what's really funny. Comedy can get dated really quick. And actually, and I wanted to interject really fast because of what you said about Stagecoach. I like Stagecoach a lot. I think it's a fantastic film. One of my all-time favorites is Citizen Kane. And I know just because of how much I've read about the making of that, Orson Welles watched Stagecoach countless times. He was really studying it as a lesson in filmmaking. He was watching the directing of it rather than just for the story. He was watching about camera angles and how was the scene filmed. He kept watching it over and over again to get a better sense of how he should approach making his film. I have never watched the two of them together, but I bet it would be very interesting to see if you watch Stagecoach first and then watch Citizen Kane to see, can you see the influence of John Ford and Stagecoach in Citizen Kane? I know that's true, that he did do that. And it would be interesting to try to figure out. I think it's much easier to see the influence of Rebecca on Citizen Kane, which also Mm. uh, he studied. He especially studied the storyboards. But I do know, yes, he was a big fan of Stagecoach, which is my favorite Western of all time, my favorite Ford film. But there are problematic elements of his films. His treatment of Native Americans, though pretty much of the time and was pretty much part of the general prejudice of the time, 
But the Native Americans in his films are generally lack a lot of depth, or what depth they have is pretty much that they're just savages. Well, yeah, he really portrays them as one, you know, two-dimensional, even one-dimensional characters. They're just there to serve one purpose, to be some kind of antagonistic force. These are the bad guys, and we need to stop them. There's never any further exploration into why are they like this. They're savages, and we need to protect ourselves from them. And that's really all it is. He does try to get a little deeper into films, and that is Fort Apache, which is about a man who is willing to kill as many Native Americans as he can in order to become a presidential candidate and the searchers my big problem with the searchers is that even though it's trying to investigate racism against native americans the movie is pretty racist itself and you mentioned one of the scenes the treatment of the person who's called a squaw and who marries in quotation marks the central character is treated with just as comic relief is just ridiculed and then the other native americans are just savages that's all they are they do have one line that explains why they're doing what they're doing but that's far too late and far too little in fort apache it's actually very clear that the reason why they're having problems with the native americans is because of this guy who's coming to fort apache henry fonda and is causing the problems everything was fine until henry fonda arrived And then he does try to do more big epic he made toward the end of his life, Cheyenne Autumn, which is about the Trail of Tears, I believe. It's interesting that you're talking about the Trail of Native Americans. Like I said, I'm a big fan of old-time radio. In the early 50s, toward the end of the Golden Age of Radio, which was like the early 60s, that they had more adult westerns like Gunsmoke, and there was a show called Fort Laramie, which is where Raymond Burr was before he moved on to television and was Perry Mason. The way they portray Native Americans is with a lot more respect. A lot of them are given significant speaking roles in these stories, and the white characters in this stories because they live among the Native Americans, so they treat them with a lot more respect. It's a shame that that was on radio, but if you look at a film from the same time, you're going to get the same stereotypical Native American character who's just in war paint and out to scalp white people. 30 years from now, we're going to look back on films that are made today, and we're going to go over all the problematic aspects of these films. We have our own prejudices, we have our own bigotry that are getting into worse part that we don't really realize are there. What I find frustrating is when I talk about this on social media, people will not admit that there are problems with these films. Some will admit it, but say it's unimportant. Others will say, no, this is not true. Gone with the Wind. We don't need to be told about the problematic aspects of Gone with the Wind. We can figure that out for themselves. And in the same breath, they will say there is no racism in the movie. And I'm going, you've just contradicted what you've said. And it's the same for the searchers. I would get into arguments and saying there is a lot of racism in this movie, and they absolutely refuse to believe it. People have a hard time understanding that you can actually like a work of art that's problematic, and that a problematic work of art doesn't mean that the work of art is automatically no good. I can totally relate to that. When I was in high school, when I took my first film class, one of the teachers, he presented all the films chronologically. So one of the first films we watched was Birth of a Nation, a film about how the Klan came to be, and they're the heroes of the story. And you watch that now now and you think, oh my God, how could you do this? And I think it's great that they're coming back and saying, how could you have done that? That's great. What then you have to do is, well, is it so reprehensible that the movie is unwatchable? Or is there something about the movie that it rises above what it is? When you look at Birth of a Nation, I do find it almost unwatchable. And one of the reasons is 
the incredible racism is just so overpowering. You get to Gone with the Wind, and though I have certain faults with Gone with the Wind, mainly in that I don't know why anybody would want Leslie Howard when they could have Clark Gable. The movie just never made any sense to me. And it is racist, but it has so many other things going for it. And you, if you compare it to Birth of a Nation, it has almost no <laughs> racism in it. But it's okay. It's okay to like Gone with the Wind. It's okay to think it's a great picture. I don't think it's a great picture, but it's okay to think it's a great picture. And the same for these Ford Westerns. I can see that. One of the things I, I think about while I was watching it, is there anything in the information about it? Did they film it, at least part of it, in Monument Valley? I don't know about Monument Valley exactly. It sure looked like Monument Valley, but it was done in that general area that he liked to use a lot. I do know that it was not filmed anywhere remotely close to the Rio Grande. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) The actor who played the son, Mm -hmm. what did you think of him? Because I just thought he was kind of on the wooden side, especially that really creepy scene where Maureen O'Hara comes to him in a tent. First, she kisses him on the forehead, then she kisses him right on the cheek, and then she kisses him on the lips, and that was just so creepy. I did like him better than you did, but I do take your point. He was a child star. He was discovered acting in plays, was taken to Hollywood to be in The Yearling, and was even given a special Oscar for that. Continued to do movies while going to school. I do agree the kiss on the lips is a bit creepy. I don't think that's unusual for the time period where it took place for the mother to kiss their sons on the lips. But today, yes, it is a bit creepy. Soon after this, he stopped acting. He went to college. He did a lot of other things. I think basically lost interest in acting. A number of child actors reach a certain age and they go, you know, it was a job, but it's time to leave. With that, here's more information about the film. It cost $1,214,899 to make and made $2.25 million in rentals. So I guess it didn't do badly. The film contains folk songs led by the Sons of the Pioneers, which was a very popular singing group at the time. But one of the reasons why they're in it is one of the lead singers is Ken Curtis. Ken Curtis, who people who watch old television will recognize from Gunsmoke, was Ford's son-in-law. According to Maureen O'Hara in her biography, Tis Herself, some stuntmen died during the shooting of the film when they fell from their horses during a scene in the middle of a muddy river. Their bodies were allegedly never recovered. John Wayne later said that he considered the movie a parable for the Korean War. Wayne was in favor of extending the conflict when the Chinese forces crossed the Yalu River. And that was one of the big controversies of the war. A lot of people, including MacArthur, which is why he was forced to resign, wanted to cross the river and invade North Korea. With that, let's start closing out. I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Like I mentioned way back in our Star Trek discussion, watching Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 together, or at least watching it as a series, because they're all connected. Granted, number three is the weakest of the three. I think it still makes for a very entertaining science fiction story. Even more interesting is that each one is different unto itself. It's just a really fun six-hour science fiction story. Oh, great. I've only chosen one, which is unusual for me. I usually have <laughs> two, three, or four, and it's In Harm's Way, Otto Preminger's 1965 war epic about an officer who is removed from command after Pearl Harbor, but gets a second chance in commanding a boat during the first year of World War II. But will he get a second chance when his estranged son, who hasn't seen in years, shows up as an ensign on a PT boat? This is not a great film, but it's really entertaining, and I found it amazingly nihilistic. With that, what is next? What should we be looking for from you? 
like every good screenwriter, I am plugging away with all of my scripts are all in various stages of development. And as we talked about way back at the beginning of the show, I run the Maximum Z screenwriting blog, which is at MaximumZ.blog. I'm talking about myself and my working towards a career as a screenwriter and also as interviews with various screenwriting affiliated people. I'm also on Twitter at Maximum underscore Z. I do enjoy connecting with other writers, so feel free to track me down on either at my blog or on Twitter, and I will follow you back. Great. Well, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, so I have a Howard Kosner Facebook screenplay consultation page. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, fantasy, horror short stories. I have also published the second edition of my screenplay book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find that on Instagram. The previous podcast was with filmmaker and fellow podcaster Donald McKinney III, where we discussed Revenge of the Nerds and The Freshman, both films about nerds in college. I will then skip a week and then join filmmaker Mickey Levy, where we will talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gunga Din, both stories centering on the Raj and rebellions in India. And with that, Paul, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Well, thank you very much, Howard. It was great talking about both of these films and everything that was connected to both of them. 